This is a fascinating conversation I had with Nobel Peace Prize nominee Leon Kaluahao Siu, the Minister of Foreign Affairs for the Hawaiian Kingdom. Mr. Siu's activism I find incredibly intriguing in that nations such as Hawaii, Okinawa, and other nations that uh, have since become part of larger colonial empires oftentimes did not accede to the treaties or annexations that led to them coming under control of colonial powers. So Mr. Siu's work at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs for the Hawaiian Kingdom is in large part to empower the Hawaiian people to recognize that they still should control their own government, their own territory, and their own land. It is a way to stand up to the hegemonic concept of Hawaii as a state because the people of Hawaii never agreed to become one. I talked to Mr. Siu today about the protests on Mauna Kea, the incidents involving the construction of a telescope on Hawaiian territory that many Native Hawaiians feel is sacred land. The conversation is divided into two parts. In part one, we will talk to Mr. Siu about the history of colonialism and imperialism in Hawaii and how Hawaiians have never agreed to or been asked if they should become part of the United States. This was a matter done by force by a small group of capitalists in collaboration with a hostile US government. In part two, I'll talk to Mr. Siu about the philosophy behind the protests at Mauna Kea and some activists and ways of understanding Hawaii indigenous peoples groups, and different ways of thinking between the scientific and the sacred that I believe are critical for saving the world in a time of rapacious capitalism that works for the few and not the many at the expense of destroying the earth and the resources it contains. If you like what we're doing, please feel free to reach out. You can always get in touch with me at matt at asiaarttours.com. That's our email. You can check out the tours that we offer in places like Okinawa, Taiwan, and hopefully in the future, Hawaii, that try to connect people to indigenous groups so they can get the true story of these nations and their cultures, not the commodified and sensationalist version. Here's our conversation with Mr. Siu. I hope you enjoy our chat. For more information on Hawaii, you can also listen to our chat with activist Rob Kajiwara.
that stood out for me in doing research for our chat is um, Glenn Colthard, who's a member of the Yellowknife uh, Nation out of Canada. He talks about how, for many indigenous communities, land is a relationship uh, compared to a more Western understanding where land is property. And so when I see terms like the sacred, um, I'm wondering if it falls into what uh, Dr. Colthard is talking about, where he's saying essentially that this almost a, an ideological conflict between sort of a capitalism that privatizes and separates and individualizes versus uh, perhaps uh, an ideology that the Hawaiian people or indigenous people have about land as something to be uh, seen as a relationship, shared and decided and interacting with a variety of people, not something to be owned individually. And this tension you see again and again in Hawaii with the tourism industry uh, buying up some of the most uh, valuable land, um, numerous treaties about how land should be distributed, ignored, as you've said, as a sort of a systemic pattern throughout Hawaiian history of treaties not being honored, and then private capitalists um, from the mainland, people like Larry Ellison or Mark Zuckerberg, acting in a way that completely ignores the wishes or sovereignty of Hawaiian people. So could, I'm wondering if you could explore this phrase, land is a relationship uh, to, to uh, Native people, but to more white colonialist capitalism, land is property. Could you explain that tension for this, these protests? Uh, first of all, that is absolutely what is at the crux of, of the, the uh, dispute, let's say. Uh, and that is, it's this different concept or this different understanding of who we are and, and what our re relationship to the land is. And yes, like other indigenous peoples, the Hawaiians uh, have an intimate relationship and believe that this relationship is, is a sacred relationship with the land that uh, to, to uh, be kept from that relationship or to withdraw from the relationship in any way does harm not only to the people, but it does harm to the land as well, uh, and vice versa. Whatever harms the land harms the people. It is crucial to our understanding as to who we are, and we, I believe, we believe to how the Creator made things, that, that there is this relationship in which our, we are responsible for the land. We have lots of terms in our language um, that point to this relationship between the land and the people, and how crucial that relationship is. Uh, some of those terms are many. Uh, there's very few terms like that in the English language, so to speak. Uh, I get asked this question a lot: What happens if if the Hawaiian Kingdom actually comes back? And I tell them the main thing is going to be not only the style but the philosophy in in what our relationship is to the land, and and that would govern the kinds of decisions we make regarding the land and regarding our lives and regarding the uh, the health of the people and things like that, where the, the, the priorities and the um, aspects of society are, are stood on its head, so to speak, away from the, the dollar being the most significant measure of uh, society and, and going into how, how healthy are the people, how healthy is the land. That should be the measure. Building off that, um, another scientist or doctor who's done a lot of uh, great work as an academic is Dr. Raj Patel, who recently wrote a book, I don't know if, if you've come across it, called The History of the World in Seven Cheap Things. 
he talks a lot about this idea of Cartesian duality, that oftentimes in Western nations, scientific progress is viewed as something that's universally good, whereas oftentimes within indigenous communities, they sort of say, you're not really seeing the forest through the trees you're trying to measure. Could you talk a bit about for perhaps, let's say, liberal allies who I think tend to think of science as unequivocally good? Why is this something that needs to be dialogued more about, that a telescope is not always universally good? Or scientific progress, if it means, as um, Dr. Patel documents, cataloging, um, manipulating, and ultimately extracting resources in the name of building machines that run on fossil fuel. How can scientific progress be, in fact, regressive in many ways um, that we don't see if we look at it only through this sort of Western Cartesian capitalist lens? And and that's where, where the key is. It depends on the lens you're looking at it and, and the use of it. The science in itself is not bad. And our, our, our people were great scientists. You know, they observed and they saw the ways of nature and they they utilize this to their advantage and, and created a society that was totally in harmony with what is around them, totally working with, with science, even though the science may not have been empirically expressed. They understood science. They, they, they lived science. And so we're not against science per, per se, but what is the use of science if it actually creates a disharmony with nature and disharmony with the people? And, and this is where the conflict of vision and conflict of, of purpose comes in, in that uh, science needs to be used for the benefit of, of nature, the benefit of our people, and for the benefit of, of maintaining a symbiotic relationship and balance among all of the elements, and not to be used simply to destroy or simply to extract or uh, for the use of one area at the expense of another area. There needs to be a balance. And that's the, the whole difference. And I, I think uh, the, the tendency of the Western society to have to measure all everything in empirical terms is, is what is almost is disconcerting to most uh, native peoples because we don't see things in terms of dollar signs or numbers or comparisons uh, of, of uh, power and things like that. We, we see them in, in how does this work in harmony with how things should work. So uh, another scholar that I wanted to bring up with you, because I'm very curious, you know, like Rob Kajiwara, who's an activist I've spoken with, uh, and even um, for, I think, more, uh, for some younger people, they're familiar with Hawaii through Kaniela Ng's campaign uh, as a socialist. I'm very curious about what Paulo Freire called the banking model, where he was very skeptical of how Western education uh, sort of builds systems of dominance through the classroom setting, where you come in, you're told what is correct, you're not really given the opportunity to question or engage with it. There's one text, that's the text that exists, so therefore it is true. And when I look at these younger activists like uh, uh, Mr. Kajiwara or uh, Mr. Ng, I'm very curious as to how knowledge, how are the Hawaiian people sort of uh, trying to oppose maybe this banking knowledge of what Hawaii was? How, when I listen to activists like Mr. Kajiwara talk, he'll talk a lot about 
showing great respect for his elders and that a lot of how he's learned about Hawaiian culture and uh, as well Okinawan culture is through these these non-university, more communal uh, settings where education might look very different from sort of a Western university model at the University of Hawaii. So I'm wondering how, how what do we need to understand about how Hawaiian culture is taught uh, in order to understand how Hawaiian people are understanding what, what it means to be Hawaiian today? Yes. Okay. Now, of course, you know, the university and those uh, institutions are basically a Western invention. Uh, not to say that indigenous peoples didn't have something similar, but most of the learning in indigenous cultures uh, is actually extreme. Uh, Westerners would find it very hard to, to uh, understand. And it's basically shut up and listen and watch. You know, uh, you, you watch your elders, you watch how things are done, and then you, you participate in it and you learn through the doing. So an indigenous way of passing on knowledge is could be extremely um, frustrating to a Western mindset who wants to just see it written down in a book or in pages and, and explain to them from an expert. Whereas in, in the Western, in an indigenous way of teaching, you sit and you listen and you watch and you absorb. It's a different way of learning, but in many ways, yeah, and you can teach just about anything that way, but it's also contrary to the method that is used in a Western society. Now, so I think that both actually can work very well. In other words, we, if we can take the discipline of sitting and watching and, and learning that way, but also have the ability to expand on the exploration of different ideas and things like that, and bring that into play as well, uh, and like, like I was talking about harmony and balance, these types of methods can both be used as long as it is not, uh, how, would, how would you say, um, an exclusive uh, of one another. In other words, they need to be worked together because there is a lot of value in the empirical, empirical type of uh, learning. But in many times in you know, Western society to the um, rejection of, of indigenous learning. They're both very valuable. I tend to lean toward the, the, the more indigenous way of learning uh, that you learn by watching and you learn by listening. You learn by respecting others and seeing what they have to say and, and digesting it and giving people enough of a, uh, uh, respect so, so that you can learn from what, what they're saying or doing. Even if you may not agree with what they're saying or doing, you can at least respect where they're coming from and take that into account and, and work it out for yourself. For tourism, I think there's probably a lot of very well-meaning people who don't realize that tourism is propaganda in a lot of ways. It's about defining what an identity of a people is, reproducing that and commodifying it, and sort of hiding uh, the other possible identities or ways of being uh, that might be associated with a culture. I'm wondering, particularly for Hawaii, where so much of the local economy is based on tourism, if I'm a tourist coming to Hawaii, 
What are some of the ways where I'm sort of tricked into seeing Hawaii as only one type of identity? Or what are some examples of how the culture has been commodified into something that, that is, is completely alien to what it is? And then perhaps more valuably, how have you taught um, people from the mainland or people who are not Hawaiian or not associated with indigenous communities? How do you see them to learn to see what's invisible, to see past the propaganda into some of these questions you and I have discussed today? In my lifetime, um, you know, basically from the 60s um, on, there has been a slow progression in the uh, in in the understanding of our culture, um, with among our people here, so that we're no longer necessarily participating in in the fraud of what Hawaii is. But what we've been able to do is actually bring the image into better focus and into uh, something based on 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 something real. In other words. Uh, the values of, like, say, words like aloha, even though it's it's used in the tourist industry a lot, we actually can exemplify it. Well, about 30 years ago, um, a Hawaiian man started up a program to try to uh, to to change things as far as people's perception as to who Hawaii is, and he thought that the way to do it is to change. The, the understanding that our own people, those that work in the tourist industry, the, in the service industries, to actually train them about who we really are. And so he started some classes at, 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 at different hotels, um, and they would have a series of Saturday classes um, on what it's like to be Hawaiian. And this is teaching Hawaiians and Filipinos and Japanese and others who are working in our hotels uh, who've lived here, uh, their local people who've lived here all their lives, but really never knew about what the values uh, and, you know, the deep values of our culture are. So they started teaching that in these classes. And lo and behold, uh, the, uh, the surveys that they take from the various uh, tourists who've been here, how did we do and what was the, how was your experience and things like that. Well, they started to really show up in, in that that these tourists were were suddenly treated so much better. They they felt like the people really exemplified what they thought Hawaii was going to be like, and in other words, there was a noticeable change in the service that was being delivered uh, by a people who actually started to live who they began to learn who they are, and that began to. Uh, intrigue and to bring uh, more tourists back or the, bring some of the tourists returning want to learn more about this culture. And so what we find today, uh, you know, 30, 40 years later, is that tourists are actually very much wanting to know more about Hawaii, a deeper part about Hawaii. So, so are not quite as uh, satisfied with the, the surface, uh, you know, the uh, the stuff that's, that they, they see in the brochures and all that. They want to know more because they think that there is more and, and they understand that. And now our, and our people are exemplifying more. So um, the, the tourist industry has been in many ways uh, affected by, by the uh, deeper understanding of our own culture among our own people. Uh, and so the treatment and the, the service being uh, rendered to the tourists uh, are much more profound 
than the tourists had expected. And it's also deep building a deeper understanding and a deeper rapport for who we are. So when we talk about issues of sovereignty and of issues of, 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 of Hawaiian being uh, a, a unique culture and a unique nation, uh, people actually understand that now a lot better than they used to. Before, it used to be just entertainment, you know. But now they feel like treated to, to visiting a, a real culture. And that's not to say that everything is has been, you know, decommodified because they certainly are commodified still. But but the people begin to see past the surface of the uh, the hype, so to speak, and seeing something beautiful behind that. So is it fair to say when we think about some of these issues, it is easy to uh, essentialize them into ethnicities or? religions, where when we think of, let's say, Standing Rock or uh, Native actions in Canada or what's going on in Manokia, we can mistake that as sort of a ethnic-specific or cultural-specific when perhaps it's more about trying to create another way of being outside of, of neoliberal capitalism that has become hegemonic. It's trying to open up alternative spaces of being that anyone can come into. You hit it right on the head. And, and the amazing thing is that this is part of the mystique and the romance that people are looking for and they suspect is in places like Hawaii or where indigenous people are. You know, in other words, the, the cheesy hype of hula hula and things like that are, uh, people already suspect that that's a hype. And, and when they get treated to, being, to seeing something real, and say Mauna Kea, most people never knew that Hawaiians are um, very concerned about about their land and about how they're being mistreated and things like that. And and to see it done in a way that's totally nonviolent and, and respectful, um, uh, I, I think that is is a real education, a real eye opener for a lot of people, and it it builds this. It, it plays on what they suspect is special about Hawaii, and then now they're beginning to see it, that even in, in a very, uh, what could be a very uh, volatile situation, uh, the Hawaiians are handling it in the way that their culture demands, and, then, and it's working out. You know, it's, it's a peaceful way of approaching something. And I, th I think that this is becoming uh, a good example for us, now, some people are going to simply look at it and say, oh, it's a bunch of natives. Uh, the natives are restless and they're, you know, just acting up. But I think a lot of people are impressed and are, are seeing that there's something much deeper to this than just a bunch of dissatisfied natives. <laughs> no, I think that if, if you can put a term like sacred in a newspaper like the New York Times, that's a tremendous act of rebellion because it opens up all sorts of conceptual possibilities that otherwise would not exist. Uh, when you're as alienated, I think, as a lot of young people are who've been left out of the spoils of capitalism, to see something like sacred is very liberatory and very inspiring because I think many of us crave that, even if it's not in a, in a Judeo-Christian sort of context uh, or, or within a religion. I'd love a world with more sacred things. I don't like a world where everything can just be bought and sold. I'd, I'd like this idea of 
of the sacred. And I, I am very fascinated that the Hawaiian activists have been able to open up this other way of thinking. Uh, Leon, the last question I had is, is I'm very curious because I, I didn't touch upon it with Rob because I didn't know him as well when we first started chatting and I didn't want to um, offend him because it is a hard question. So Rob and, and, and uh, fellow activists who, who coordinate um, will oftentimes have to go through institutions where the game is rigged, where you have to, you have to go through the courts of the colonizer. And you'll often see uh, Mr. Kajiwara, in terms of his activism for Okinawa and for Hawaii, trying to go through bodies that have been sort of set up by the colonialists, be it uh, courts in Japan or international bodies where the U.S. basically, along with China, is the hegemon. You know, we call it international. We know it's anything but. I'm just wondering for, for, for you as an uh, activist who's thought very deeply and, and committed your life to a lot of these issues, how do uh, Native activists look at these the institutes of the colonizers? Why do they go through the, the sort of what can seem like dog and pony show of, of, of dealing with them? And what are some of the ways that um, those of us who are sympathetic can, can help uh, in spheres outside of a, a place like the UN where I can't get access to it or a place like a court. How do you see yourself when you have to enter those institutions? And for those of us who are on the outside but supporting protest actions like Manokia, how can we help you if, even if we're not inside these colonial institutions of power? Again, we talk about sacred. You know, I think, I think the idea of changing our own mindsets to seeing things being sacred and, and not profane, you know, um, because uh, I, th I think that if we can start to ourselves see that's how we can help, because what, what will, it'll do is it'll start to change our actions as well, to behave in a different way, in, in a way that's, again, more respectful and, and, and sacred. You know, it's not just us. I mean, that People, people do respond, even, no matter how um, immersed they've been in a system that rejects the ideas in terms of that we're dealing with as indigenous people. I think there still is a, an attraction and, and a, uh, no one's really totally lost their connection to the world or to the earth. It's, it's still there. And some people may, may seem they're much farther away from it, but it's still there. And I think we can still draw on that. And, and I think examples such as Standing Rock and, and Mauna Kea, uh, more people than we realize are actually being affected because it's calling upon something inside themselves. And that's, again, returning to the sacred. This knowledge of that you are part of this earth and that this earth is... Um, a a uh, strong factor within who we who we have come to be and who we are and, and all that. Even though, again, if we de we've departed from it, there's still the earth is still our home and it's still our our mother. It's still that nurturing part that, and I don't think we totally ever uh, forget that. Some people are far away from it, but I don't think everyone's anyone has totally forgotten it. So I, so this is what we can do is, is the more we behave and act on the, the basis of this is who we are, the more it will not only 
help us to understand and to uh, to improve our behavior, but it'll bring others as well. And so, in other, you know, it'll inspire others. Let's say. Well, Leon, um, before you go, could you just say your name um, as well as if people want to follow your work or fellow activists' work, where would you point them to? Uh, my name is Leon Kaulahau Siu. And I'm the Minister of Foreign Affairs for the Hawaiian Kingdom. Uh, it's my job to represent the interests of the Hawaiian Kingdom internationally, and I am quite a bit, quite a lot immersed in the um, in institutions and the mechanisms of the world uh, that are out there, the international community in particular. And you can keep up with me. Uh, our website is hawaiiankingdom.net. For the protesters on Manokia, where would be a resource you you turn to if you wanted more? Uh, you want you you're fine reading the New York Times, but you'd also like to read the perspective of the people who are actually taking direct action. A couple of groups which you can Google. Well, one of one of them is Kahea. That's K A H E A, one word, Kahea. Uh, and another word, another group is Huli, H U L I. And then there are dozens more. So if you just start Googling, you'll find dozens of, of groups and people who post and, and give regular updates and some very brilliant insights as to what's going on. Well, Leon, it was a pleasure. Um, thank you so much for your time today, and we'll look forward to helping you get the message out. Yeah, you're welcome very much, and thank you for your interest and, and actually for your excellent questions. Uh, and for the understanding I see you already have about what's uh, what's at stake here and, and, and what we're doing. So I appreciate your uh, understanding. It was my pleasure. I'll talk to you later, Leon. Okay, aloha. The Hawaiian word for water is wai. The Hawaiian word for life is ola. Wai ola, water of life. From the top of the mountains down to the sea. Wai ola, water of life. life.